Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, Imogen Cunningham. My first guest, Paul Martineau, is the author of Imogen Cunningham, A Retrospective, which was recently published by Getty Publications. Susan Ahrens also contributed to the volume. The book will, eventually, serve as the catalog for a presently unscheduled Cunningham retrospective at the Getty Center. It'll be the first major retrospective of Cunningham's work in over 35 years. The exhibition had been scheduled to open at the Getty back in June and has been delayed by the pandemic. Amazon and IndieBound each offer the book for about $45 to $50. We'll have links on manpodcast.com. Cunningham had a remarkable 75-year career that touched on seemingly every movement in American art and photography between about 1910 and her death in 1976. Wow, that's a long time. Cunningham is particularly well-known for her address of pictorialism, her address of modernism, of street photography, nudes, and her portraits. On the second segment, Jane L. Aspinwall on Golden Prospects, California Gold Rush Daguerreotypes, a re-airing of a segment from last year. I'll explain when we get there. Paul Martineau, after the break. On Saturday, November 21st, the Museum of Fine Arts Houston opens the new Nancy and Rich Kinder Building for modern and contemporary art, capping a decade-long project to complete the MFAH Susan and Faya's Seraphim Campus. Visit mfah.org getmodern for details. Take a virtual drive down Sunset and experience the iconic boulevard through the lens of artist Ed Ruscha. Featuring more than 65,000 photos taken between 1965 and 2007, this interactive online exhibition guides us from downtown L.A. to PCH, past sites like the Cinerama Dome, Roxy Theater, and Chateau Marmont. Watch the storefronts, billboards, and cars change over time. Search for a favorite neighborhood or landmark. Learn more and start driving at 12sunsets.getty.edu. Support for The Man Podcast comes from the Pulitzer Arts Foundation, a museum that believes in the power of dynamic experiences with art. On view through February 7th, 2021 at the Pulitzer is Terry Adkins' Resounding, a career-spanning exhibition that surveys the trajectory of this influential artist's expansive and improvisational practice. The exhibition features a range of Adkins' work, including rarely shown early sculptures and works on paper, as well as his acclaimed recitals, installations of related artworks with which Adkins explored the legacy of unsung but significant historic figures and moments. The exhibition also includes a robust selection of items that Adkins collected, books, records, musical instruments, and other objects from a diversity of artistic traditions that highlight the breadth of Adkins' literary, musical, and visual influences. To plan your visit or to purchase an exhibition catalog, visit pulitzerarts.org. And we're back. Paul Martineau, welcome back to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you very much, Tyler. I think that before we can address Imogen Cunningham's career and work, it's worth the spotlighting that she lived a a very long life and had an almost impossibly long career. She was born in 1883, and the last work in the book and in the exhibition to be or the exhibition that is but isn't up yet, (laughs) was made 90 years later. And she only began to really receive the scholarly attention she deserved when she was 80. So obviously it goes without saying that sexism was and is a factor. But are there ways in which you think the sheer extraordinary length of her career made it difficult 
for her work to be embraced. That certainly is a factor, but also I think one of the things that complicated things for Imogen is that she constantly shifted with her time, that she started out doing pictorialist pictures in the soft focus style. Then she switched to a modernist straight photography and was doing plants. And then later on, she was doing street pictures in the 1940s and 50s. And then in the 70s, she became someone who was doing pictures that looked more candid. So this gradual changing of her own style and subject matter, very hard for people to put a finger on her, to kind of label her as one type of photographer or another. And portraits all the while, or much of the while. That's right. I think that was what she considered her special talent. We will get to portraits in a little bit. Cunningham grows up in Seattle, and while I don't want to spend too much time in biography because there are lots of great pictures to talk about, I want to introduce how you think Gertrude Casabir and Francis Benjamin Johnston informed Cunningham's work. How did she know of them? What do you think she took from them? Well, certainly she was looking at the periodicals of the time, like Camera Notes and Camera Work, and the first issue of Camera Work featured Gertrude Kazebert, was dedicated to her. The article that introduced Kazebert was written by Francis Benjamin Johnson. So these two artists were pioneers in their field, and Cunningham certainly would have been well apprised of the pathways they took to become famous photographers. Listeners may remember that we talked about those two photographers with Kathleen Pine when we talked about her new Ann Brigman book a few months ago. We'll have a link to that show on manpodcast.com. There's a, it's not a plate, it's a figure in the book of a portrait made of Cunningham at the Curtis Studio in the Pacific Northwest. Do you know, do we know if Ella McBride informed or influenced Cunningham? Well, we know that they worked there together, but we really don't know what kind of influence she might have had on Imogen, other than she was, you know, somebody that had gained a certain amount of success in the business world. Cunningham starts out as a pictorialist. There are a couple dozen plates of her pictorialism in the book and in the show to be. Is, is there anything uh, about her approach to pictorialism and her pictorialist pictures that you think particularly stand out within the thing? The picture that's called The Dream is extremely beautiful. And I think the way that it she's handled the light in that picture, it became, becomes um, so completely otherworldly. And it seems to be inspired by her sitter, who was known somewhat as a clairvoyant, that Cunningham is modulating the light in such a way that the picture seems to glow from within. We'll we'll have an image of it on manpodcast.com. It's reminiscent of spirit photography. (laughs) Yes. From the late 19th century. That's right. Cunningham's pictorialism is different from some other Westerners in that there are landscapes, full stop. There are pictures of people, full stop. And she's not doing the humans in nature thing the way Anne Brigman did it. Do we have a lot of textual material from the early part of Cunningham's career in which she lays out her ideas about what she wanted those pictorialist pictures to include? 
there isn't really any statements by her that include, you know, her recipe for what she was trying to do. But she often mixed landscape and uh, figures in a way that would give rise to thoughts of the kind of Arthurian legends and mythologies that were neo-romantic. She was a great follower of the pre-Raphaelite artists and used some of their imagery to inspire her own pictures in nature. She started making portraits around 1910 or so. There's a terrific portrait in the show of Claire Shepard, miniaturist from 1910. It's a very Julia Margaret Cameron, maybe influenced picture. When and why did she start making portraits or having the opportunity to start making portraits? Well, certainly she started making portraits as the kind of first thing that she did out of the gate because it was the kind of easy thing to do. She started her portrait studio in Seattle in 1910, and she became renowned in the community for the kind of beauty and honesty of her pictures. She didn't use a lot of props for her pictures in her commercial work or special backgrounds, and she always used natural light, and she was very talented at making these compositions. Very shortly, she had a good business making pictures for the local residents of Seattle at the time. There were a lot of women who were running Pacific Coast portrait studios in those years. I guess, I suppose that must have been a path that was particularly available. Yes. And, you know, portraiture wasn't on the high end of the hierarchy of genres, so it was considered more appropriate for women than, you know, doing something much more ambitious in the early 1920s, she begins to take a, 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 tor- a turn toward a, mo- a more modernist portrayal. There is a terrific picture called Torso of 1923, which it seems to me in your presentation is kind of the hinge. I guess, is that picture a hinge? And what kind of guided or informed her transition? She was looking at the works of other artists as well. She was particularly interested in the nude, which was unusual for female photographers at the time. And she was making pictures of nude men and women in the 1910s. And that ended up causing a scandal where she was called an immoral woman by the local paper. And she put it away for a while until things cooled off. And then she became interested again in the human body and how it looked in front of the camera. The picture that you're referring to is of a dancer and the way that dancers keep their bodies in shape and move their bodies must have been particular of a particular interest to her. I mean, one of the reasons I think Torso is an interesting picture is that one can find within it ways in which it comes out of pictorialism, but in its radical shadowing and a really strong diagonal, it also seems to point toward modernism. In her practice, was it a sudden thing? Was it a gradual thing? Is this an image that's a real pivot? I think that it is an extremely important image. And she's looking and framing the human body in ways that were quite revolutionary. I think, for the time, getting in really tight and 
showing the textures of the skin and the folds of the, the skin was something new. In the mid-1920s, she starts making photographs of, of plants. What, what, what started her, 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 her turn toward sharply modernist compositions featuring plants, pictures like flax from 1926, which is pretty wow level? Right. Well, at that time, Cunningham had small children to tend to, and she was having trouble getting out of the house and making her pictures. She spent a lot of time in her garden where she started planting different kinds of plants and flowers, and then she used them as her uh, subject matter, sometimes taking them into the house or sometimes bringing black cloth or a whiteboard out to the garden so that she could isolate the plants from the surroundings, all the while using natural light. And it's that California light that produces those kind of stark contrasts uh, that she seems to really rejoice in, in her prints. There is this moment in American modernist painting, you know, of this period and a little bit earlier, where kind of in the, the, the late throes of the American interest in nature, artists are taking kind of a final pass at flowers and plants. Do you think she was informed by the Demoths and the Sheelers and their interest in modernist portrayals of plants and flowers or, or Weston on the east on the West Coast with photography or maybe none of the above? She certainly was aware because she was a voracious reader and looked at all of those, the art books she could get her hands on. So I think that these must have had an influence. If you just think of the calla lily, that the calla lily was one of the most photographed and painted pictures throughout the 1920s. And although people think that Imogen might have been influenced by Georgia O'Keeffe, she always claimed that that wasn't the case. We will have an image of that one, uh, of Calla Lily, on, on manpodcast.com as well. As Cunningham is making pictures of plants and flowers, pictures which are often thoroughly sexual, she's also returning to the body and, and making more pictures of nudes. Is that coincidental? Is she thinking of a broader, more pointed project? I think that these things go in hand in hand because she was looking at universal forms in nature, whether they be in the human body or in botanical specimens that she found or planted in her garden. It was this quest for the geometric forms that uh, she found in things all around her. There's a great picture of a magnolia blossom from 1925 that both reminds me of Martin Johnson Heed in the late 19th century and his painting, which I imagine she must have been aware of. But I also look at that picture and think, I've never seen a magnolia flower that perfect. <laughs> that I mean, they're usually a little bruised. There's usually browning on the edges of the petals, but this one's ideal. <laughs> and she found a way to make it glow from within, you know, by back, backlighting it. Yeah, yeah. Let's talk about portraiture a little bit. So she had a portrait studio for a while and later becomes known nationally as, as, as a portrait maker. I don't know how common it was for photographers who were 
making consciously modernist avant-garde compositions and prints to have had a second life as a photographer of portraits for glossy magazines aimed aimed at you know kind of the upper class and their their taste for Cary Grant pictures was that unusual would that have been considered a strange set of twin interests well i think that the magazine that hired her vanity fair had an editor who was frank crowninshield who was very interested in modernist uh, photography so he's the one that hired cunningham to work for the magazine there she's also making portraits that aren't at all modernist like the absolutely i mean almost funny picture of her father at age 90 <laughs> where he's sitting on a wood pile and and looks like you know santa claus having just retired from active service she was very proud of her father and she wanted to show him as an active older person and so she photographed him on his wood pile which he actively kept chopped the portrait she made of gertrude stein in 1934 is not in a super modernist vein but boy it sure is super intense you really get a sense of the force of Stein's personality coming through in that picture. At about the same time, she makes a portrait of Alfred Stieglitz at an American place, a picture that probably not unusually survives in a number of croppings, if you will. How did she make that picture of Stieglitz? And by which I'm asking, how did she kind of pose him in the particular way she did? And why is, is there a reason why it survives in several different versions, one, one definitely longer than the other? She made the picture in 1934 when she went on a trip to New York, and she brought her 8x10-inch glass plate negatives, but she didn't bring the camera because it was too bulky to travel with. So she asked to borrow Stieglitz's own 8x10 camera, which was practically an antique and it had rusty settings, and it was difficult for her to judge the light that was coming through the window. And when she touched the camera, it seemed to rock on the rickety tripod for an eternity before it settled down so she could make the picture. She um, directed Stieglitz to sit and to stand in a couple of different places, and she made seven exposures and they all came out so that's why we have so many different versions of him at his gallery he appears kind of to be leaning backward but simultaneously floating like like he's not leaning against something how did she do that i'm not really sure i would imagine that he needed to steady himself because he was an older person at the time for a long exposure you know he didn't want to make the picture blurry so he must have been leaning up against something when the picture was being made. And in the background is uh, Giorgio O'Keeffe's Black Iris, which is now in the collection of the Metropolitan Museum of Art. So in some ways, it's, um, you know, a portrait of Stieglitz and also O'Keeffe's work. I have been raising Cunningham's portraits, um, mostly of pretty well-known people. But her portraiture practice, especially in these years and afterward, is is really broad. She, she's not just photographing famous and famous white people. 
how did she consider the breadth of her photography practice and who she wanted to include within it? She uh, Cunningham didn't want to be limited to one particular type of subject matter. And she was always challenging herself to try new things and to expand her practice. She was interested in different types of people. So there's a broad variety of people of different racial backgrounds, socioeconomic backgrounds, cultural backgrounds. She found human beings and their kind of circumstances interesting. So there's a great story about Cary Grant that we'll get to at the very end of when we're talking. So I'm going to leave alone the Cary Grant portrait for now. But I, I, I want to, in, in line with what you just said, she made a portrait in 1935 or 1936 of Helene Meyer, who is posed with a, oh dear, I'm going to get in terminology trouble, a fencing foil, an epee? Yes. Ooh, good. And, and I, think, I think that her story maybe is a good example of the complication of humanity that Cunningham included within her portraiture subjects. Who was Meyer and how did Cunningham come to know her? Meyer was a champion fencer who was Jewish from Germany. And she came to Southern California to study. And at a certain point, Hitler revoked her, the program that allowed her to have this internship and also canceled her nationality. She, he revoked her passport and said she was no longer German. For the Berlin Olympics, the National Socialist Party invited her to participate and represent them in the Olympics. And she went and she won a medal. I believe it was second place. And uh, when she came back, she brought Imogen uh, two by two and a quarter format camera as a gift. So a, m a much smaller camera than Imogen had been using. Yes, that Imogen could carry this thing around in the streets and make pictures. That was in 1936. So that really opened up a new avenue for Imogen, not having to lug around a heavy camera on a tripod. One of the interesting things to me about, about this period in Cunningham's pictures, when, when she goes out in, in, into the street, first of all, she's not making what we now think of as like late 1950s New York City street photography. You know, there's nobody in crosswalks. <laughs> but her pictures uh, become uh, looser and more playful, as you might expect from somebody going from a camera that requires a shoulder and a half to carry to, to, to one that does not. But her images are still very considered, very constructed, really tight. But now she's playing with reflection and mirrors and the construction, not just of the city, San Francisco in this case, but she's constructing compound images that push elements up against the picture plane in, in, in ways she really hadn't done before. Was it as simple as a new and different and mobile camera? Or do you think she was looking at and thinking about new things at this time. I think she was trying to take some of her, the aesthetic ideas she had in the early modern period and bring them into her street photography. And she often said that because she had twins, she was interested from the beginning in doubling, that the double was something that was really important in her life and that she brought it into her photography as well. That's interesting because there's a lot of seriality in Cunningham's work starting around this time in the mid-1940s. And then, of course, a little bit later, 
in the 19, early 1950s, she meets Ruth Asawa, who I suppose it could be argued maybe introduces seriality to, to post-war American art. The Asawa pictures have become enormously better known in recent years as the New York art market has embraced Asawa. How did they come to know each other? And did either of them know, understand, or expect how important those photographs would be, not just in making Asawa's work known and better known and kind of defining what it looked like, but also, as it turns out, how they would be installed and displayed in museums and galleries? They met through an association of Cunningham's son uh, with Asawa's husband, the architect Albert Lanier. And they lived at first, they moved a few different times, but they lived at first only six-minute walks from, from where Cunningham had her cottage on Green Street. And I think it was an immediate appreciation of another woman who really believed that she shouldn't sacrifice her career to have a family and have a rich family life so that they had this kind of basis right from the beginning of respect and admiration. A little later in the 1950s, Cunningham makes an extraordinary picture called The Unmade Bed. It's a picture of, well, obviously an unmade bed, but but, but we, see, we, we see the bed, we see a kind of a blanket and sheet flowing, sitting on the bed with two to four objects sitting on the bed. What what are those objects and how do you consider this picture? Uh, the objects are hairpins and Imogen was attending one of Dorothea Lang's classes and Dorothea Lang gave an instruction to her students to photograph something that they, you know, use all the time. And Imogen got out of bed and it struck her when she looked at the sheets that she could fulfill the needs of this, this assignment. So she threw her hairpins on the bed, which was a way of claiming this space as the woman's space and made the picture and then sent it in to Dorothea Lang so that she could see what she had done. It's an incredibly moving picture because it shows the kind of spirit and presence of a woman without actually showing her there. Yeah, the hairpins, I mean, you know, you're right, they're hairpins. I'm not trying to, I don't, I don't mean to rudely question that at all, but they look more menacing than we think of hairpins as ever looking. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And then also, of course, there's a sexual subtext going on all the time of people letting down their hair and taking their hairpins out, taking their jewelry off, and the rumple sheets are suggestive of a sexual presence, which wasn't always considered appropriate. You know, Cunningham was grew up in the 19th century where, you know, to infer these kinds of things was only the province of men, not the province of women. And it's another reference to painting in the sense that there are all those Baroque paintings of nude women with their hands in their sheets, in textiles. And this is a very Baroque flowing sheet slash blanket on, on top of the bed. We'll have image on manpodcast.com. It's super sensual. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the lighting gives the sheet much more than the bed a volume I mean, it gives it a fullness that's really, really something. 
As, as, as we get near the end of, of Cunningham's career, there are more portraits. She begins, I, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, printing several negatives together into single images quite often. And in 1973, she makes a picture called Another Arm, which is full of art historical, recent art historical references. I, it's impossible to see the picture without thinking of Belmer, surrealism, and violence against women. It's one of a couple pictures, a number of pictures in which she uses, I, I'm using the word mannequins. I don't know if they were mannequins like you see in a, in a Macy's window or what. So here, here she is introducing something into the work when she's 87, which is just, I love that, right? So what is she doing and addressing in, 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 in a picture such as this? What is she adding at, at age 87? <laughs> How that picture came about is that she often went with a photographer friend looking for broken dolls that she could purchase at junk stores and different places that sold a variety of used materials she would use those doll parts as a way of introducing a certain amount of unease and violence into her pictures, unlike she had ever done before. That was a part of her growing concern for the state of humanity and her anti-war feelings, because this was the time of the Vietnam War, and she was very much against that war. So it was an exploration that she was doing in her older age, Looking at pictures as a way of communicating certain ideas that she had without kind of hitting people over the head with them. And I think that's what's happening in the picture of another arm, because we have these plastic white arms that are interposed with an arm of an Asian-American photographer. Each of the last six or seven photographs in the show slash book feature hands. Yes. Hands was one of the subject matters that she kept on coming back to. I think she learned that from her study of, of painting. Early on in her life, she looked at many different books. And then later on in 1910, she went on a grand tour and spent time in European museums. And if you look at one of those older paintings, portrait that includes hands, and then you kind of block out the hands, uh, you see how much power the picture loses. I promised we would get back to Cary Grant. I've tried to avoid talking about biography a lot here, but it would be just wrong to close talking about Cunningham without mentioning her famous appearance on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. Cunningham uh, made a portrait of Cary Grant in 1932. You know, God, four decades later, whatever it was, four and a half decades later, she's on The Tonight Show and Cary Grant comes comes up again. First, do you have any thoughts on the Cary Grant portrait? Secondly, what, how did Cary Grant happen to come up as she and Johnny were sitting on the couch talking? She was asked to do this portrait of Cary Grant, and she went down to Los Angeles and went to his home, and she tried to find a place to make a picture, and she wasn't satisfied, so she asked him out into the yard where she posed him. She managed to capture a kind of a very soft picture of him looking somewhat introspective and vulnerable, which isn't the kind of typical way that celebrities were pictured at the time. So it comes across as very powerful and, in, and kind of personal and intimate. So then later on, when she went on the Carson show, she talked about having come to Hollywood before to make pictures for Vanity Fair and that when Crown and Shield asked her what she wanted to do. She said, give me the ugly men. 
they're not vain and they don't complain. So Carson then asked her if she considered Grant ugly, and she replied, no, he convinced me he wasn't. And of course, everybody started laughing, and that was the moment that she really blew everyone out of the water. Everyone wanted to be, to talk to her, to, all the guests lingered after the show to speak with her. It was a triumph. Yeah, she was about 90 at the time, too. (laughs) Yes, yes. Paul Martineau, thanks very much. Thank you. Artist Mark Bradford creates monumental works of abstract painting and collage. The exhibition Mark Bradford End Papers focuses on the key material and fundamental motif Bradford employed early in his career and has returned to periodically over the past two decades, End Papers. At the Modern Art Museum of Fort Worth, the exhibition has been extended through January 10th. Information at themodern.org. The Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina, is collaborating with Duke Arts and Duke Health to present an unprecedented outdoor exhibition and public awareness campaign by nationally renowned artist Carrie Mae Weems. Resist COVID Take 6 emphasizes the disproportionate impact of the deadly virus on the lives of communities of color through large-scale banners and window clings, billboards, posters, street signs, and more. Resist COVID Take 6 has taken shape on the exterior walls and windows of the Nasher Museum and Rubenstein Arts Center at the front gate of Sarah P. Duke Gardens and the Carpentry Shop, home of the MFA in Experimental and Documentary Arts. Resist COVID Take 6 allows the Nasher Museum to present an impactful outdoor art experience safely during the COVID-19 pandemic. Later in the fall, Resist COVID Take 6 will extend into the surrounding community. The Nasher Museum is temporarily closed for the health and safety of all visitors. The museum is available by appointment to Duke faculty and students. Visit nasher.duke.edu. Welcome back. Next up, my 2019 conversation with then Nelson Atkins Museum of Art curator Jane L. Aspinwall. She joined me to discuss her exhibition, Golden Prospects, California Gold Rush Daguerreotypes. The show argued, and perhaps still argues, I'll explain in a moment, that the Gold Rush was the first broadly significant event in American history to be documented in substantial depth by photography. The show features rich images of San Francisco and of the Sierra Nevada foothills transformed by miners in pursuit of gold. It debuted in Kansas City uh, at the end of 2019 and was scheduled to travel to the Peabody Essex Museum in Massachusetts and the Yale University Art Gallery before the pandemic interceded. It may still go to Yale. I don't know. I contacted the museum today before taping uh, and have not yet heard back. We'll certainly update this week's show page at manpodcast.com with that information when it comes in. Right now, the exhibition continues through its fantastic catalog, which was published by Yale University Press. Amazon offers it for about $45.50. We'll have a link on manpodcast.com. Aspenwall is a two-time Man Podcast guest, a colleague and a friend. She was laid off by the Nelson Atkins as part of the museum's recent and inexplicable decimation of its photography department. The Nelson Atkins' photo department has, for years now, been one of the best and most admired such departments in all of the United States. After the museum leadership laid off one of the department's three curators, the senior curator in the department, Keith Davis, resigned in protest. It's not clear what will happen at the Nelson Atkins and at the photo department there, 
curators and photography scholars from all over the United States have been contacting Nelson Atkins leadership in protest of their recent decision. I decided to re-air this segment with Jane Aspinwall because the show deserves more attention than the pandemic is allowing it to have. (laughs) Jane Aspinwall, welcome back to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It might well be argued that the two major events of the American 19th century to which photography was the most important were the Civil War and the California Gold Rush. Photography of the Civil War has been much studied and exhibited most recently by by Jeff Rosenheim in a show at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in 2013. And here's the big California and the West Gold Rush show. Why was the Gold Rush such a major photographic event? I would have to say just because it was such a major historical event, well, worldwide, really, and there were so many photographers that were making their way to California. Some were with the rest of the groups in search for gold and others were there, you know, primarily to establish studios and, and, and take images. I think that a lot of the participants in the California Gold Rush knew at the time how important this moment in history was and really they really wanted to have their claims and their portraits taken so that they could kind of commemorate this participation. It is a infamously thorny period of American history to document and chronicle, in part because textual record survival from the period has been spotty. Stuff that left California and, and, and went east, letters, for example, have generally provided much better understandings of of the early far west and material that stayed in California because of the earthquakes of 1868 and 1906, which brings me to the two major daguerreotypists of early California with whom you had to reckon in absentia almost. Who were J. Wesley Jones and Robert Vance, and why don't we know them better? (laughs) Well, unfortunately, because both of those big projects, which were documented with daguerreotypes, all the daguerreotypes have been lost from both of those projects. So that would probably, you know, explain why we don't know a lot about them. You know, J. Wesley Jones and Robert Vance were two men that really made their way west at almost the same period of time, 1850, 1851. And Jones was so awestruck by his journey from Kansas to California that he envisioned a panoscope, a painted panorama that would be based on daguerreotype images that would he, he would take actually from California back to Kansas. And he took a lot of the daguerreotypes, the Shoe brothers, William and Jacob Shoe, took a lot of the daguerreotypes around the California gold region, and then all of these were taken back east and made into a painted panorama, which was exhibited at many of the cities in the east to, to great acclaim. Robert Vance really approaches it as a photographer really interested in the daguerreotype and its looking at the California Gold Rush experience and took 300 whole plate daguerreotypes of the cities, the regions, the miners, and also envisioned this grand exhibition, which would tour to cities in the West, in the East, excuse me. And, you know, did a phenomenal job. They were framed in, you know, rosewood frames and shown in New York and to 
critical acclaim, but publicly it just was not that well received for many different reasons. Some historians say it wasn't publicized effectively and, you know, then others feel that it's just the experience of viewing these small, you know, daguerreotype images. But over time, the daguerreotypes for Jones's project, we have no idea what happened to them because they were basically taken as a means to an end. They easily could have been destroyed as the panorama was being painted. And then Vance's, you know, ended up being auctioned and ended up with uh, Fitzgibbon in St. Louis at one point and ended up, I believe, in Chicago, where I think that historian Gary Ewer has tracked there in the fire that they were just destroyed. So unfortunately, two of the really great documentations and earliest documentations and most complete, I would argue, have been lost to time. But luckily, Robert Vance continued his you know, photography in California. And, and so we still have a lot of incredible images that he did. Yeah, a lot of Vance's works survived. And, and so did the work of other daguerreotypists, in part because there was just this massive boom in daguerreotype studios popping up in California's two cities, San Francisco and Sacramento. In fact, you write that San Francisco, quote, may have been the most recorded city in North America in this era, end quote, which is just a wild idea considering how young, I mean, this is a city barely 10 years old, at least in terms of Anglo-American presence. So what type of images were most made in those two cities by whom and why? Well, in the cities, I would have to say Robert Vance and George Johnson were two of the earliest and, you know, two of the two of the best. They most daguerreotypists and actually most people who are journeying to California had to go through San Francisco at one time or another because it was kind of this port of entry, whether you were coming overland or whether you were coming by ship. So really this was an incredible meeting point. Sacramento was lesser so, but was the largest city that was closest to the gold fields. So that was another important place. And many of the Daguerreans, once they landed in California, San Francisco was the first place that they established studios. A lot of the daguerreotypists really centered on city portraiture, many, most of them city portraiture, Vance and others would also take images of the city street construction that was going on, the panorama. So when they would take images where there would be maybe five half plates that would all be taken in a series, those were very popular in San Francisco, especially we have a terrific one by uh, attributed to Sterling McIntyre, in particular in the book. That's really kind of extraordinary. But, you know, commercial merchants who were coming into San Francisco and starting businesses were very interested in having their structures documented uh, so that they could show their success in the gold rush. Uh, daguerreotypists also photographed their own studios as part of that documentation. So, yeah, San Francisco was incredibly important. A few of those made their way into the gold fields, and those are the ones that really I kind of focus on in the book and George Johnson in, in a really big way. And then other lesser-known Daguerreans like Isaac Baker, Joseph Starkweather was an important one. Yeah, that, that really, you know, give us an incredible body of work. Is there a portrait or two that you think is particularly great and worth highlight, highlighting? 
studio portraiture, I do. I think that uh, the Shoe Brothers, Jacob Shoe in particular, took some tremendous, you know, just kind of traditional portraits. There's a wonderful half-plate portrait of a little girl that I think is is really beautiful. But, you know, Vance was incredibly gifted. He took, you know, image of a woman and a child in mourning that we have in the book that's really beautiful. Yeah. And then there, are, you know, all of the minor portraits taken by unknown daguerreotypists. And I think that those are pretty extraordinary as well. There are also a bunch of non-panorama views of San Francisco in the show. They're, they're interesting for, for lots of reasons. As you noted, you know, San Francisco might have been, probably was, the most panoramid city in North America uh, at this time. But the other outdoor views of just kind of the city, of, of, of dirt streets and hills showing a city in progress are kind of remarkable. What What did they tell us or show us about early San Francisco and was anyone in particular really good at them? I think that the what was really remarkable about San Francisco is that it was yes it was you know this huge metropolis but it was also burning down to the ground about you know once a month for you know a, a long extended period of time so quite often fires intentionally set by uh, merchants and 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 people who stored goods near the port once san francisco became too full of goods and prices began to drop uh, fires were set insurance was collected and the cycle started again <laughs> <laughs> That's about right. That and the fact that early, you know, all the early towns were basically canvas and wood and, you know, with the huge influx of people into, you know, these cities, things were going to happen. And, 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 you know, so anytime a daguerreotypist would visit a city, the city of San Francisco, and then come back, you know, several months later, or look out their windows several months later, or they were moving their studios about every three months because they were being burned out. It was always a new vista to to kind of look at. The stereo view became a popular technology, photographic technology throughout the nation, you know, in the mid-1850s, and it was widely received in California. And so there are stereo views, in particular by Robert Vance, of the different uh, city blocks in San Francisco that are pretty interesting as well. Yeah, there is a great kind of astonishing Vance stereo in, in the show showing Sacramento Street in, in San Francisco from kind of 1854, 56-ish. And art history nerds will find in a lot of these Vances and, and, and some other pictures kind of the beginnings of pictorial ideas that would continue to interest Western artists right up through, you know, Bechtel and Thiebaud and Diebenkorn. A whole bunch of these guys, and, and they're almost all guys, but there are women who are making daguerreotypes and early paper prints in, in the far West. A, a, bunch of, a bunch of the daguerreotypes head up into Gold Rush Country several hours to Sacramento's east, a few more hours to San Francisco's east. Are they making the same kinds of pictures in Gold Rush Country that they're making in the cities, or are they, or are they different? They're different because the subject matter is so different. I would argue George Johnson is probably, you know, one of the most preeminent gold field daguerreotypists, and as he made his way into the regions, he would travel 
something itinerantly from town to town, from claim to claim, photographing, you know, these really these different uh, evolving mining technologies, miners of their claims. So it evolves from, you know, the easiest mining technology, which was panning for gold, to rockers, to long toms, to sluices, to large-scale river mining, where they would divert rivers from their original courses, hydraulic mining, where which was essentially an early form of strip mining, aiming, you know, high-pressure water at hillsides and, you know, just really devastating environmentally. And so he w- he really covered a, a lot of ground. A lot of the Daguerreans, when you kind of stitch a lot of their images together, you get a good sense of kind of this evolution of technologies. The Johnsons are amazing. You can you can see whole rivers being moved. You can see the water in those rivers being moved via flumes, which are uh, wooden built structures, kind of like aerial canals or something. I don't know quite how to. I'm never quite sure how to describe a flume, even though I've had to do it. <laughs> A bunch of times. I, I think my other kind of favorite of, of of the Gold Rush pictures in the show is one of a, a Gold Rush town called Georgetown, California. And it's a picture, the foreground of which makes clear the toll the Gold Rush had on 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 the environment. What does that picture show and and what is in the foreground of that picture? Well, in this image of Georgetown, so this is taken by an unknown maker. It's a half-plate view, and it's of a sawmill. It's of a lumber business, and the foreground, I'd say, gosh, at least half of the image is just log after log after log and lumber. The middle ground has the sawmill probably at work, and then toward the right side of the image, you have the beginnings or the remnants or the of a small town. And you can still see canvas structures. So it's probably, you know, a pretty early image of this town where I think we're attributing it to 1850, 55. I know that there was an engraving made of that particular view for an 1854 edition of the Pictorial Union. So a, a lot of these daguerreotypes, and in particular George Johnson's, even though we don't know whether this is a Johnson, but Johnson had a terrific relationship with a lot of the publishers of newspapers and other periodicals and was able to have a lot of his plates made into engravings. And, and this is a good indication of a of an unknown daguerreotypist who has done the same thing. And, you know, these engravings, of course, reached a much larger audience than kind of the single-time, one-of-a-kind daguerreotype wood. But, of course, wood was incredibly important, not only to building up, you know, all of these towns, but for the mining structures, you know, the sluices and the flumes and the trestle work that would carry water from mountain reservoirs down, you know, to, to various claims, sometimes, you know, miles of fluming. So wood was really important, and it, it was important to for the lumber industry to kind of get off its get off its feet, get off the ground to enable all of that to happen. Dam building too, right? I mean, because a lot of Sierra Nevada dams built in the at least in the '60s and early '70s were 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 timber dams. Absolutely, a lot of a lot of those early ones were for water. You know, just to to be able to move water where it was needed. You know, that was another thing that was super interesting to me, you know, in working on the research of this exhibition were just all these early, 
you know, issues that California continues to kind of grapple with today, you know, water rights and, you know, having enough water in the right places. Really interesting. You mentioned that a lot of these daguerreotypes were made into etchings that were published in magazines. It's probably worth noting that this is a time when, you know, it was 20 or 30 years before photographs could be reproduced in print, in a, in a mass printed volume, whether that was a newspaper or a magazine or a book. So it was common then and would be for several decades that the way photographs were translated into a way that a broad audience could see them was was through etchings. And there are a number of examples of that happening in the book, in the catalog for the show. Could you give us some context or some idea for how important these Gold Rush Country daguerreotypes are for showing us not just Gold Rush Country being built up, but the processes that were used to mine, the way natural resources were used, the way the land was was remade, are, are, are you know, taken as a whole, are these daguerreotypes as important as, more important than textual sources? How important are they in our understanding of what happened there? Well, I think as far as the land goes, I think they're pretty important to seeing the, I mean, on at from a 21st century viewpoint, you know, the devastation of the area, the, you know, just the digging of every, you know, gorge of every ravine, you know, this river mining where they would turn rivers from their original courses. I mean, they were digging feet, you know, many, many, many feet below the surface and just, you know, the tailings from a lot of these different operations, hydraulic mining, where they would, we talked about that earlier, washing down, you know, huge chunks of earth, but they would also use mercury in the sluices and all of these, you know, types of technologies. But with hydraulic mining, it was on such a large scale that they were just dumping these tailings, you know, down hillsides into streams, polluting, you know, farmland for, you know, miles down the stream. So they were they were pretty devastating. So I would say you don't hear anything <laughs> in the, you know, diaries and accounts. If you do, you don't hear much about, you know, the horrible devastation. You just hear about this, you know, untapped resource that would be unlimited and was, you know, divinely, you know, mandated to be used. And that's really all you hear about it. You don't really hear about kind of the aftermath. So I feel like the images really kind of hammer home, you know, the physical effects of this mining that went on really for, you know, a good solid 10 years. The one thing that I did feel, you know, was neglected in these images and I was able to really kind of go into more in the book was the diversity of the populations. Really, if you look at the gold rush daguerreotypes in mass, like I did, you would think that this was ex exclusively a white male experience. And of course, we know that it was not, you know, that there were a lot of different groups from all over the world, different races, different gender, uh, working in the gold region in different capacities. And we just don't see those that kind of diversity reflected in the in the daguerreotype plates, which is unfortunate. You do, though, have have some really striking images of of non-white dudes. There is a portrait by an unknown maker of uh, a Chinese woman holding another daguerreotype that that is particularly eye catching. 
Well, and Joseph Starkweather, I would have to say, is the, wow, the preeminent de- daguerreotypist of kind of these, these un, what we would consider unusual views because there just weren't so many of them made. Starkweather was really an, an incredible daguerreotypist. We think that he probably was not was operating on his own. We can't find any advertisements for any uh, studio. We can't find uh, any anything like that that he established any kind of a business in in the in the district. But he was photographing in 1852. He arrived in early 52 and then was really gone by uh, 53. But he took an incredible series of images: Chinese miners two of the only known daguerreotypes of black miners, women in the gold field. I believe there are maybe eight images known extant to Starkweather, and he really, the variety is really astounding. There's also a terrific Robert Vance, probably from San Francisco, of two men, one's an Anglo-American, one appears to be Chinese-American, and it's kind of a dual portrait that just kind of opens up a a host of narratives. (laughs) Absolutely. I mean, he was probably, we don't know the identities of other, either of these men. And I believe the one you're talking about is in the national gallery of Canada, Canada in Ottawa. We also, the Nelson also has a uh, portrait of a, of a, of two men, one Anglo and one Chinese definitely taken in the city. We think maybe, I think possibly this man may have been a merchant. He may have been a early a translator. There were many Chinese merchants working in San Francisco. So in the cities, there were Chinese miners, but there were also a great number, you know, running businesses in the cities. Yeah, the Nelson picture, the Chinese man is in a pose and position in, in in which he reads as an attendant or servant in the Vance, the Chinese man is sitting next to the Anglo-American, slightly closer to the camera than the Anglo-American, and he's holding a book, which we can't see anything of because the text is blurred, uh, inevitably. But it's, yeah, it's just one of those things that makes you wonder. Finally, I would be remiss if I didn't note that in 2008, Weston Neff, a former Getty curator, devoted an exhibition to, among other things, claiming that Carlton Watkins, the great artist and photographer of the 19th century West, um, and indeed all of America for that matter, arguing that uh, Watkins had made daguerreotypes in 1850s California and that he, Neff, had identified some. Neff did not publish a catalog for the show, did not publish defenses of his attribution claims, and the field has nearly unanimously, totally unanimously, rejected his attributions. Did you find any evidence, any, that Watkins made daguerreotypes in the 1850s, uh, let alone that any survived? I did not. I am not terribly surprised. Uh, Jane Aspinwall, thanks very much. Thank you. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.